Are you tired of the blind leading the blind? Are you ready to escape the 9 to 5 grind and build a life that truly makes you happy? Are you ready to build generational wealth for you and your family? If any of this sounds like you, then breathe easy because you are exactly where you need to be right now. A wise man once said, when the student is ready, the teacher shall appear. So have faith in what I said and follow the path. My name is Khadija LaShawn, and I am the Black Guidance Counselor that my community needs. I'm a strategic investor and CEO. I make money in my sleep, and I teach others how to do the same. I share my knowledge, talents, and resources with others. So if you're in need of that motivation or courage to start following your own path, look no further. My intention is to share as much value with you all as possible and to show you that there are many different paths to happiness and many different paths to wealth. You just have to find the one that's right for you. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you clearly. Can you hear me? Yep, yep. Perfect. Okay, awesome. It's Mark, right? It's Mark, yep. Nice to meet you. My name is Khadija, Khadija LaShawn. Just giving you a heads up, once you take your, like, if you take your headphones out, it'll stop recording. Just just letting you know. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But how are you doing today? Good. Can't complain. Just uh, trying to adjust into the Monday after a long weekend. Um, Just trying to knock out a bunch of stuff. Uh, Um, Definitely look forward to uh, the podcast episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, before we start, is there any questions that you have for me or questions about the podcast or anything like that? Yeah, I kind of want to know what the the podcast is all about, maybe a little bit about you as well. Absolutely. So um, like I said, my name is Khadija LaShawn, also known as your Black Guidance Counselor. My entire intention with everything is to guide people to the resources that they need. Um, Those resources can be housing, they can be educational resources or just knowledge from my experiences and stuff like that. So that's pretty much what I'm about. I'm on YouTube, Instagram. Um, I started off on Instagram about basically before the pandemic. Mm. Um, Back then I was working a corporate job. I had just purchased my home like the year before. So that's where I was. But I basically, I quit my job kind of like very rashly, but it turned out okay. Um, Mm -hmm. My intention was to get a real estate degree, but um, my test was scheduled on like May, March 13th or something like that. And on the day of the test, they shut everything down and they didn't tell us. Yeah. Like, and the thing is I finished my course. I passed the course. I took the test to pass the course in person. And then literally the next week was my licensing test. And God was just like, nope, you can't do that. So um, it was just like, okay, what do I do now? So what happened my earphones are like somewhat dead <laughs> so okay. i think they died on me so exactly what you said was gonna happen i ended up happening so it's I okay. apologize. <laughs> no worries no worries uh what, what was the last thing you heard from me uh so you're just talking about how you like left your job job and it was somewhat rash um but yeah. it worked out for you 
Yeah, so it worked out. Um, I had to like really, uh, I was going through some emotional, mental stuff there. Um, but basically it was a part of my spiritual journey and mm. coming into myself and like realizing like, what am I like? I don't want to just sell people on something. I don't want to just buy, like, create something just to sell to people. I want to make an impact, you know? So it was kind of like really connecting to God, getting closer to God, and understanding like my purpose. And mm-hmm. um, the whole Your Black Guidance Counselor thing, it really came up because I do Lyft. So I drive Lyft in Baltimore City. Uh, so I see people all day long, I interact with everybody. A lot of people like to talk to me or like to vent and stuff like that. So like a lot of times when I'm talking to someone, I'll be saying something and I'm just thinking I'm just being normal, but I'm saying what they really need to hear. Mm -hmm. So with that, like I would get like a lot of people saying like, wow, that's confirmation of what exactly what I was already thinking. Like you just said it, you know, so it's just like crazy. So um, I also share a lot of value, like naturally in me, I don't charge people to just tell them something like if I know how to do it and I can just tell you real quick I'm gonna just tell you mm-hmm. because it's not that serious it's not that serious to me um I I feel like that's something I'm working on because I definitely want to monetize my gift uh because I do have a lot of gifts like I, I was a film major in college I was a psychology major I graduated you know like all this stuff and I did event planning like I have a lot of skills so um it's just like bringing it all together right now so oh um that's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then yeah. the podcast, as far as that's concerned, it's overall just about entrepreneurial journeys, sharing the stories of black creators. Like and that could be a business owner. It could be an influencer. It could be an artist. Just, you know, we're all creators because we all come from God. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then so I share their entrepreneurial journey. And if they have any spiritual guidance or advice or and stuff like that, like I'm literally guiding people to resources. That's the whole thing. So. Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I couldn't hear you before. Yeah, um, I think I think what's going on is um, so I don't use the head. I'm not using the headset anymore. Mm-hmm. But also, if my phone um, the light turns off and it locks, then oh. I'm not. So I need to just make sure it doesn't lock, which should be fine. So you turned it on your settings. You turn the display timer off. Yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. that's All right. what I did. Okay, cool. So, All right, cool. Um, do you have any questions? Nope. Good to go. Okay, cool. All right. So I'm just gonna get started and then I'm just gonna let the ideas flow. Like I already have an overall what I wanna know, but um mm-hmm. feel free to like overshare. Like don't feel like you are <laughs> talking too long. Like you'd be surprised. You know, people a lot of people will see you and they can relate to you and they're just like, Wow, like I didn't know there was other people out there like me, you know, like I didn't know that you could find other ways to impact people and and build a career and stuff like that. So don't feel afraid to give all of what you have to say. Can you still hear me? I can still hear you. Okay. All right. You good to go? Good to go. All right. Today's episode was recorded via Anchor by Spotify and re-uploaded online. Hello, everyone. My name is Khadija Lashan, also known as your Black Guidance Counselor. I am here to guide you to the resources that you need. Today, I have Mark, also known as Better Wallet on Instagram. Um, He is an ex-finance. You're an ex-finance, right? Like you're not in finance anymore, but... Right, yeah. I, I retired from corporate finance. 
So you retired from corporate finance. I was in corporate finance too, bro. So we got some stuff to talk about. Okay. <laughs> so um, now you have Better Wallet. So tell us a little bit more about what Better Wallet is and what do you represent? Yeah. Yeah. So put simply, you know, the goal of Better Wallet is to help people manage your money the right way. So essentially I take everything that I have gone through from foster care to grow up in a low income um, you know, family to putting myself through college to, you know, becoming a stockbroker, then eventually a financial advisor and trying to bucket it or trying to wrap it all into the, the Better Wallet platform. So, we um we have free resources. We have different um you know coaching opportunities as well, and coaching resources to really help you invest, pay off debt, budget your money, um, and you know essentially put money away for the future. So like so budgeting, um, basically how to manage your finances, right? Right, exactly. Okay, that's good. That's stuff that people need to know. Um. All right. So before we get into more about Better Wallet, let's talk a little bit about you, Mark. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about, tell me about your childhood. How did you grow up? Yeah, definitely. So um, a lot of my childhood was in foster care. So, you know, both my mom and my my mom and dad, um, biological mom and dad, they were, um, you know, they, they were, you know, pretty much addicted to uh, all types of different drugs um, when I was you know, from being conceived to um, being born. So I came out as like a preemie baby, um, you know, crack baby, if you will. And I was immediately put into foster care. So bounced from foster care to foster care, um, you know, group home to group home as, you know, a young kid. Um, And then eventually I was adopted at the age of 13. um, But I was adopted to a fairly low income, you know, family of uh, fairly low income. Um, you know, town. I want to say it's one of the poorest towns in in the country. Yeah. Um, so it was it was interesting because I didn't know that we were poor. <laughs> you know, though I got free lunch or reduced lunch or what have you, and you know, there were people around me that had more money. I just assumed that was just life, right? Everyone, yeah. everyone around me, you know, for the most part, they were living the same way that I was living. Um, worked similar jobs to my mom and my dad. So, you know, money was, money was tight, um, but you never really felt that way because, again, it was life. So my, my dad was a high school, I'm sorry, my dad was a warehouse worker, so he pretty much moved boxes um, from left to right, you know, from one conveyor belt to another. And mm-hmm. my mom was a high security prison guard. So both of those jobs were, you know, decent jobs for my area. Um, so that, you know, allowed them to put food on the table and such, but there wasn't anything that we did that was lavish, right? Like there was nothing that we did that, you know, showed you that we had any sort of, of money. It was just the, the life that we lived. So, mm-hmm. you know, ramen noodle dinners and hot dog dinners were normal. <laughs> I, I, didn't, understand. I didn't realize until much later in life that that's not the way you're supposed to feed children, but that's neither here or there. But, you know, growing up, I, um, you know, my dad was really big on, you know, making sure I had, you know, income sources and side hustles and, you know, I knew how to bring in money. So he was from the South and his whole mentality was, you know, the guy needs to be, you know, bringing in money. Um, you need to, you know, take care of your family. You need to provide for your family. You need to work hard. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was doing odd jobs my entire uh, childhood. So, 
you know, mowing grass, cleaning cars, um, whatever I could do legally <laughs> in order to yeah. make money. You know, that's essentially what, what I did. Um, shoveling locks, right? You know, I, I perfected the, the upsell, right? Like, hey, like, I can <laughs> shovel, I can shove your walk, but if you want me to put salt, put salt on your, on your driveway, it's going to cost you this much. Um, mm-hmm. and if you get it now, I can actually give you a discount, right? So yeah. you like learn that at a very young age, how to kind of hustle and, and you know, put money yourself. in your pocket, right? Yeah. So, so as a kid, I would be the one that, you know, saved a lot of money. Uh, my sisters, unfortunately, were not the same way. They would, you know, as soon as they made money, they would spend it. Um, so they would, you know, ask me for money as a, as a kid, even though they're older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just like, you know, how I, how I grew up. Um, you know, I was rather frugal when I was younger, um, as I am now. And, um, and yeah, so over time you kind of learn how to manage your money. But at that time I was just putting it under the, the mattress. <laughs> like anytime I made it, I was just throwing underneath the mattress. And I was, I, I thought it was interesting. Like when you can have like money accumulated, um, underneath your mattress, um, mm-hmm. you know, and knowing that you have more money than most people around you was uh, yeah. you know, fascinating as a kid. But yeah, I mean, that was money, um, like the, my money tale, if you will, um, when I was growing up. Didn't really have too much, but always knew how to generate it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So, okay. Um, do you want to, um, is it okay if I ask more about your childhood? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about how you got into foster care and, like, how much time you spent there? Yeah, so as soon as I was born, the foster care system essentially said, your parents are not suited to take care of you. You know, Mm -hmm. they were going from, you know, crack house to crack house, right? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they had no business having a a kid, let alone, you know, an underweight preemie kid. Um, as they're doing what they were doing. So the mm-hmm. state essentially took me away from them. And, you know, I went through foster care for 13 years. Wow. Yep. So, um, yeah, and then at 13, I was adopted by uh, the family in uh, small town Pennsylvania. It's called Mount Union, Pennsylvania. So that's your family now? Correct, correct. So that's my, uh, my adopted family, which is, you know, only, the only family I, I know. So you you never reconnected with your your biological parents? I did, I did later in later in life. So um, luckily, my adopted family stayed in touch with my biological mom. You know, my, mm-hmm. my bio- biological mom and dad. They're you know, I don't even call them separate. I don't even think they were ever together. Um, I think it was just something happened. I was conceived, and you know, it just it gets real in those situations. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so eventually it got to the point where my parents said, Hey, like, I want you to know who your biological mother is. We still keep in touch with her. Um, no, she lives in Philly. So over time, you know, they would bring her into that, you know, the small town and I didn't really know anything about her. Um, besides like she, you know, used to be on drugs and things like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, when people say, hey, it's your biological mom, you're like, wait, but like, you're my mom, right? Like, my adopted mom is my mom. And I didn't yeah. know who this lady was. Um, and even now, like, she's more of like a distant cousin than anything, right? Like, we don't really have that solid relationship because I wasn't really raised with her. Um, I we, have, we have like not much of a connection. 
That um, makes sense. But um, by all glory to God, I ended up meeting my biological dad not too long ago. Um, three years ago is when I met him. Um, I took a test. Um, what is it called? Ancestry. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I just wanted to know what part of Africa my family was from. And then I kind of stumbled on, you know, who my biological dad was indirectly. Um, wow. So that's, you know, that could be another podcast. But, you know, the short of it is I took the test on Ancestry. They tell you, hey, like, you know, this person is your third cousin based off of genetics. And I reached out to that third cousin. She said, hey, you look like my Uncle Charles. I said, hey, it's probably my uncle too. Maybe he knows my dad. And next thing you know, I found out that he actually lived in Philly, um, not too far away from me in West Philly. Wow. Yeah, I had a conversation. And he was like, oh, I have like, you know, 10 side hustles. I'm doing this. I'm driving Uber. I'm doing this. And he was like, oh, yeah. And I'm also retired. And I'm just like, wait, you're doing all this in retirement. I'm like, this dude is my dad. Like, there's absolutely no way. He looks just like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up going and doing Ancestry as, as well. I remember driving. I was going somewhere in New Jersey. And he texted me. He said, hey, um, you know, based off of this result, I it's saying you're – it's saying that it's 90, 90, 99% sure that he is my dad. Right. Wow. So again, driving, I get this text message. I almost swerve off the road. I understand. I understand. Because at, <laughs> at this age, or at the time, I was, uh, what was I, 27, 28? So mm-hmm. I lived 28 years of my life not really knowing who my biological dad was. I was never really searching him out. You know, life was fine. I didn't really have a hole in my heart thinking about who he was. Um, but it's funny how, you know, God said, hey, like, I want this guy in your life. And um, luckily, um, we we have a decent relationship. I would say That's we, good. We probably have the best relationship out of, you know, my my other parents. I mean, my my adopted dad ended up passing away, but my adopted mom is still alive. My biological mm-hmm. mom is still alive. But my strongest relationship is with my um, biological dad. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. You could you could write a whole you could get a whole documentary on your life, man. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, like that's... a whole TV show right there. Like yeah. <laughs> you see it switched at birth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, same thing. That's crazy. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So I love telling this story because unfortunately I'm I'm not the only one, right? There's so many people I've connected with, let it be um adoptees or, you know, people who you know they're they're mom or, or dad maybe left like when they were really young mm-hmm. and they want to trace back to that family member to rekindle that relationship. So, you know, I, I try to tell a story in case someone is, is interested. So um, yeah. 20, 23 and me is, is one. And then is another one. Uh, if you guys want to check it out and trace back to your roots. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I really yeah. appreciate that. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So what were you like in middle school? Like what kind of kid were you in middle school? Um, I was that bookworm um, where I hyper focused on um, I hyper focused on my academics because I knew I wanted to escape my town and I wanted mm-hmm. to do different from you know what other people were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was that kid, you know, studying 
every night to, you know, just get better at, you know, whatever the topic would have been. I was definitely a, a jock, right? Like if I wasn't doing uh, or studying and you know, I wasn't in the books and I was on a basketball court, I was playing football, I was doing anything that kept me from having to hang around my small town. Mm. Um, so every single sport that I had access to besides the golfing, I did, you know, cross country, track, football, basketball, like whatever. So you know, at that time I was hitting my growth spurt. So yeah, I was, you know, much taller and I was an okay athlete. Um, and then, you know, I did well academically. So that's essentially what I, you know, did in, in middle school, just okay. trying to balance those two things. So high school was kind of like the same thing. Yeah. So going into high school, so we didn't actually have like a junior high at that time because of how small the school was. They just merged everyone together. Okay. You know, high, high school is when I really got serious on, you know, going to college and doing whatever I needed to do in order to prepare myself. So I joined this program called Upper Bound, which is essentially a, a, a trio program, if you're familiar with the trio programs, um, that I'm essentially not. bridge, they bridge a gap between um, college, like four-year colleges and kids who are from small towns, okay. low, low income, small towns. Mm-hmm. And I credit them to a lot of my you know, success um, from, you know, jumping from high school to college. Cause I mean, I went to Penn state. So Penn state, you know, 60, you know, at the time it was like 60,000 students. I graduated with a hundred people. Um, I think it was like close to like 95. Wow. So it was, it was a culture shock for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a culture shock for a lot of kids that are in a situation like I was. Um, so that, you know, financially it was tough and upper bound helped out with that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm going to college with people who might have went to these private schools or maybe they went to, uh, you know, one of those, um, you know, those academies that their parents are paying for. And very different vibes. Very different. We spoke a completely different language because <laughs> mm-hmm. essentially I'm from the hood and they're just from you know, Bel Air. And yeah. like, so we, it, it was an adjustment, um, uh, going from high school to college, but, you know, upper bound really helped out with that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it got more and more serious, took SATs, ACTs. I don't even know if they still do those now. Um, but, you know, did okay on those and essentially applied to school. And once I got into Penn state, you know, the, the transition from, you know, high school to college began, um, mm-hmm. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun, um, just you know, kind of getting ready for college and just being excited to be in, you know, a different place. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Getting away from home, coming into yourself a little bit, you know, getting to know yourself outside of your parents' influence, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So, was college a good experience for you? Uh, college was interesting. I mean, I I loved college. Um, you know, I I learned a lot. The coursework was, um, you know, it was rigorous. I learned a lot, you know, from the books. I learned a lot about myself too, you know, like how do I study? Like how do I cope with anxiety? You know, how do I manage a course load? You know, how do you have a social life, but also, you know, work on, you know, being successful at the same time, you know, picking the right friends. Like all those things are incredibly important. You learn that in college and not necessarily in the books. So, um, College was, it was a challenge though. Like I didn't have money to go through school and luckily I was able to beg the student aid office enough to, 
you know, get scholarships and, and loans and grants. That's a blessing. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I shortened that because, I mean, that's a whole other podcast of like how I was able to, you know, essentially do that. But they knew me on a first name basis. And I essentially walked in, said, hey, my grades are OK and I have no money. So you guys have to figure it out. Um, so that was that. So you yeah. were flirting with them, basically. No. <laughs> he no, was like, I, I, come I, pay I, my tuition, girl. You know, no, like, <laughs> just I press delete. I wish it was that uh, that easy, right? Um, <laughs> I wish. But, I know, right? It'd be so yeah. easy. Like, yeah, free college, free yeah. tuition. But, you know, it was more of, like, learning how to negotiate and, like, knowing how to sell myself um, and, and sell my story. Um, so I was able to tell my story at a very – early age and you know luckily people believed in me yeah so tell the puppy i said what up <laughs> no sometimes that's how it is seriously yeah. because uh you tell your story and people want to help you they want to support you they'll tell you which way to go but exactly. if you don't tell your story nobody knows how to help you exactly so I was, I was blessed to you know find some people in the penn state network that really cared and you know they helped out and upper bound helped out as well so that's good um so, yeah, I mean, college was a challenge. You know, you learn a lot. You're going to a pretty decent school. Um, mm-hmm. So it felt like you were drinking out of a fire hose at time. But you learn the power of, of networking and having other people teach you what you need to know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, eventually over time, you you get your act together. And, you know, my grades weren't always that great. Um, but you learn. And next thing you know, graduation's there. And. You think back and you're like, man, I had to claw my way through, but I'm here. Bruh, C's get degrees. You ain't here? Mm-hmm. C's get degrees, y'all. So Amen. just get through the door. Just get through the door and close it. Don't not finish. Then it's a waste. It's a waste. Exactly. I hear you. But um, I got you. Okay. So what would you say is the biggest lesson that you learned? Because you said a lot of things that you learned, but what is like, maybe give me an example or experience that you went through that you went through in college that really taught you something important. Yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest, um, you know, learning moments for me is just being comfortable with like elevating yourself and putting you in situations where you're not the smartest person in the room Mm -hmm. and you're surrounded by people that want to see you do well. I think that's really key. Yeah, I remember I was writing um, an essay. Um, it was for my freshman year English class, right? And I took AP English in high school, and I thought I was a pretty decent writer. But I remember someone was proofreading one of my papers. Good guy, you know. He was a, you know, he was in the military, and he, you know, obviously was doing well academically, and was reading my paper, and he was like, "I don't know what, I don't know how the position is, but." just to say it right this is how like some of the military guys are they're just straightforward you know my dad was in the military so like i got it and he was like you're writing these papers as if you're still in high school i want you to elevate your um i want to i want you to elevate your writing like i know you can so people take you more seriously Mm -hmm. right and for me i actually got offended at first i was like why would he say that like who does he think he is like what like, are we like, let's throw hands. And then I got to the <laughs> point where I was just like, wait, let me actually think about what he's saying. He's saying that I can actually be more than what I am right now 
if I just applied myself and I didn't do the bare minimum. Like the, mm-hmm. the paper that I wrote was just like, I just you know kind of scrapped something together. Yeah. And what he was saying is that you need to elevate yourself. And I'm happy he gave me that feedback. I think about it all the time. You know, I think people, I think and I know people take me more seriously, not only when I have my nine to five, but also with the Bear Wallet podcast or a podcast, mm-hmm. uh, podcast, a whole platform. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Instagram is because I, I try my best every day to elevate myself. Um, how can I be in, you know, I, I talk to people all the time. They're like, and they're saying is like, how can I be in um, the right room? Like, how can I be in, you know, the, the right room? And I think about that all the time because now I'm like, okay, well, should I attend that conference? Should I attend that meeting? Should I listen to that podcast? Should I, you know, network with that one Show person? Up. Show and up. that showing up has helped to elevate me little by little mm-hmm. because I'm in, I'm in those rooms. I'm being challenged. I'm like people around who are around me want to see me do well, but at the same time, they'll call me out on my BS if I have any, right? Like mm-hmm. you're being lazy or, you know, you could do this better. This course could be even better. So, um, so it's, it, that was probably one of my biggest learning moments is that people aren't going to believe in you unless you really believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, you'll produce different, you'll produce much better work versus like not believing in yourself. So that was one of my biggest takeaways from college. Absolutely. And um, if anybody's listening, what he's saying is that he put himself out there. He put himself out mm-hmm. there and now he's in new rooms, reaching bigger audiences and getting getting more of an impact on people, more people knowing his name, more people, you know, engaging with his content and stuff like that. So it just it says a lot that, you know, you have to go get what you pray for. You can't just want something. You gotta go get it. Mm-hmm. You can't be scared to go get it. Even if it even if it's uncomfortable, because all growth is uncomfortable. It's not gonna be comfortable getting getting to the status that you'd like to get to, you know? Exactly. It's not going to be easy either. Yeah, you'll have those growing pains, but as you grow, then you'll get more comfortable and then you get to the point where just like, I want to grow some more, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I always use Jay-Z as an example. When Jay-Z didn't go from just being a rapper to what he is today, you know, yeah. um, you know, billionaire with Beyonce. Mm-hmm. You know, he had to learn along the way. He was in the right rooms. He had to grow. He took feedback. Right. He had, you know, some things that he had ventures that flopped and he got feedback saying it's trash. Right. And then mm-hmm. like, over time, he got better and better and better. I think a lot of people see this success, but they don't understand what one, what they had to go through in order to get there. Yeah. Like a lot of people had to go through the mud, like including myself, in order to get to where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I made sure every single day I showed up, I made sure every single day I challenged myself. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get to, you know, the, the Jay-Z and Beyonce's of the world. Yeah. And even, I'm sure, and you mentioned something too. You said, not only did you put yourself out there, you took feedback, okay? Mm-hmm. You listened to people who knew what they were talking about. Like, I feel like it's important we're mindful of who we listen to because mm-hmm. someone could lead you in the wrong direction. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely, positively. They could, you know... When you told that story just now of that teacher telling you, like, you are writing in high school style, like, when you told me the rest of the story, I can understand why you react. Like, you took it in a positive way. But Mm. I also feel like sometimes you have to 
believe in yourself and follow your intuition too. Mm-hmm. You know, like if your intuition, so like sometimes somebody will try to give you advice and say, Hey, no, you shouldn't do that. Or maybe you should cut back on this. But if you know what you're doing and you did your research and you listen to the right feedback, then you should feel confident in every decision that you make, you Amen. know? Yeah. You know, like you have to trust yourself more than you trust other people because you know everything about you. Right. You know yeah, what you-, you can bring to the table. You want to make the right decisions that are going to put you in the best position. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I always tell some of my mentees, they're like, I don't know, like, you know, people are telling me to do this. You know, I think I should do that. And I'm like, do whatever you feel like your heart is telling you to do, you know, Absolutely. And, and just go for it. You know, mm-hmm. when I quit my job two months ago, you know, people were just like, oh, why'd you do it? Like, you know, what, what was the perfect formula that you used to figure out that you should uh, quit your job? I said happiness. I knew I'd be happy without my nine to five and I work mm-hmm. for myself. Yeah. And they're just like, wait, really? You're chasing happiness? That's like your your metric? I was like, sure, there's some metrics. Like, I want to make sure I can pay for my living expenses, mm-hmm. you know, time three or four. Like I have a fund where if everything goes to hell, like I would be okay for multiple years. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think Steve Harvey said it perfectly. He always says, you know, you have to jump. You have to jump and you just have to pray that you've done everything in the background over the last couple of years to, you know, make sure that, you know, you, you grow, you grow wings mm-hmm. and you don't, you know, smack um, your face off the, off the cement. Well, right? you will, you will, but it's yeah. okay. Get it's up. Okay. Get back up again. <laughs> you're yeah, going to hit exactly. your face a couple times. Yeah. I think he was saying that, you know, as you're going down, like if you're jumping off a cliff, for example, I think that's uh, the analogy that he was using. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping off the cliff, you know, you're going to hit some boulders, you're going to hit some, some trees, you're going to be, you know, just falling, it's going to seem like you're free falling, but eventually you'll get to the point where you feel that level of comfort. Um, and, you know, even if you do smack your face, you know, as long as you continue to move forward, then that is progress, because most people don't take that jump, and they're just comfortable, you know, being in the you know, status quo. Absolutely. Or they fall on their face and they don't get back up. Uh, yeah, exactly. So get back up, y'all. Get back up. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've fallen on my face many times in my life, literally and figuratively. Okay. <laughs> so it's okay. It's all right. But okay, cool. I like this conversation. We're going somewhere here. Okay. Cause I'm excited to hear about this whole corporate finance thing. Cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got to talk about that. But before we get there, what did you major in college and what did you do in your free time? Yeah, so in in college, um, I majored in economics and international business. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't get into finance, um, the finance degree, um, because I needed a 3.7, which is almost impossible to, to get. Um, especially, you know, right after your freshman year and you're just adjusting back to, you're adjusting to school and college. Mm-hmm. So I took, you know, the level below that where, you know, I studied economics, um, business economics, which is pretty much the same thing without, um, some of the finance courses and then international business. Cause really fascinating with like what was going on and, uh, the European and, you know, Asian markets. So, um, it's something I really cared about. So that was my major during my free time. I did. I, so the number one priority was how can I generate income in order to pay for school? Mm-hmm. Uh, number one. So I did a bunch of side hustles. I was 
selling you know plasma which is a completely different story um i know right i, I was, looked uh, at that a couple of times yeah <laughs> i was uh i was a barber i was cutting hair um i ran a you know barbershop out of my dorm room i was a uh a referee for the intramural sports league um literally I, i'm working with like small companies helping them to to market um mm-hmm. so essentially i was like handing out flyers for certain companies like um, I don't know if they're still around, but check.com um, okay. was a company I marketed for. The textbooks? Um, yep. Yep, yeah. exactly. So I used to market for them. So uh, that was a lot of my free time. Otherwise, you know, Penn State was and still is a pretty big party party school. I want to say at the time it was like a number one or number two party school. So we had mm-hmm. our fun. Um, I believe it. So, yeah. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was out having a blast. Um, cause you know, Penn state's in the middle of nowhere. So you're exactly. kind of surrounded around a bunch mm-hmm. of other Penn staters. It's not like, you know, some of these schools around here, like the schools in DC where you have a city around you, you literally just have kids that are all trying to yeah. have fun. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, after a week of a lot of work. So that was a lot of my free time. Um, you know, different organizations, like I did, you know, a mentoring organization, um, I was a part of, um, like, I would help out with the Upper Bound program when mm-hmm. I was there. So, you know, kind of giving back to yeah. the uh, to the community. Instagram yeah. is giving back, too. Yeah, yeah. You share a lot of tips. Uh, if anybody's wondering about finance, you need to, I'm going to give you some promo right here, okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> seriously, if you guys are, we all need we need to know about our finances. We need to understand how to manage our finances. And so Mark at Better Wallet, he's going to make you have a better wallet. You understand? Okay? He's going to make <laughs> yeah, you right. have a better wallet. Okay? So yeah, there you go. He, he got the name for a reason. But, um, yeah. so what I was going to say is, okay, so you did, so you, you mentored and you gave back some time. You worked outside of school. Mm-hmm. You were a, a economics major, business economics Okay, so tell me about how did you get into the workforce? What did you have to do? And yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, so you know when I applied for school my senior year, um, it was a weird time for Penn State because uh, my senior year is when the you know the Penn State scandal all happened mm-hmm. with like Joe Paterno and the football team and, and things like that, which I won't dive into the details, but. You can Google it, um, yeah. but it was it was a lot for the university. It was it was a, a very trying time for the community in general, just because of what what happened. I'm sorry. Um, Could you repeat that one more time? Uh, what specifically happened? Or yeah, well, yeah, what happened? Yeah, so pretty much what happened was um, back in I want to say the 80s or 90s. There was this football coach that you know essentially you know sexually harass like a bunch of like little boys through this this program that he owned and organized and it happened over the course of i want to say 10 to 15 years right so well well be um well before anyone that was currently in college was even born right so Mm -hmm. that was happening and it, it was that and you know what specifically happen um, as a response because what they end up finding out is that people 
at very high positions at Penn State knew that it was happening, but didn't report it in the way that they should have, including mm. the the head coach at that time, Joe Paterno. So the head coach, as well as the president um, and athletic director at the time, who, you know, they're all still alive at that point. Um, they all knew what was happening. At least they knew about the rumors and they didn't report it in the way that they should. And unfortunately, that led to more and more of, you know, boys getting sexually you know harassed. And it just it was a whole mess. Um, That's crazy. I just I just feel bad for the the families and of the victims. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, it's one of those type of things where I'm, I'm happy that the people who did that, they're they're either not here anymore or they're locked away mm-hmm. um, forever. Um, and that's where they, they belong. But, Absolutely. you know, all that kind of came out November of my senior year. So, you know, I understood what was going on. But at the same time, you know, you put all this work into getting a, a degree. And, um, you know, people are coming by and said, hey, like, we're not going to hire Penn Staters this year. Wow. Um, and it was a big deal. You know, you kind of you work your ass off. And then next thing you know, something like that comes out. And it's not in any of your control and you weren't involved right so mm-hmm. um it was it was tough so you're applying to all these schools and you really get in i mean it was that i think there was an element of um there was an element of, of maybe racism as well you know I'm, I'm a black male trying to get into the finance world mm-hmm. you know it's you know I, I don't fit their their mold in a way um mm-hmm. so i think that was an element of it because you know from my perspective and the perspective of others, I had a pretty solid case on why you would want to hire me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, long story short, I ended up applying for Vanguard, which is, you know, the largest mutual fund company in the world. Um, they weren't at the time, but they are now. And mm-hmm. luckily I got into one of their management development programs. That's and a blessing right that, there. That's how I got into the finance world. And I didn't know anything about finance at that time besides, you know, what was happening on Wall Street back in, you know, 2008, 2009 because of the Great Recession. But mm-hmm. um, but otherwise, I, I was definitely, I didn't really know all too much about the direct application of, you know, finances um, for, for people. Like, I come from the hood. Like, no one's talking about IRAs and ETFs and such. Yeah. So, um, so, so yeah. You... I be... Go ahead, go ahead. My bad, my bad. Keep going. I, I have a tendency to interrupt my bad no, all good i was just gonna say you know i i became a stockbroker at that time and um became a manager of vanguard and uh that was my first you know couple years out of college okay all right so um you did economics and now you're doing finance and then you jumped in there so you mentioned a little bit about you know you not fitting the mold and um, just being a black person trying to get into the financial field, mm-hmm. um, how many interviews did you get a no before you got a yes? Um, so I would say close to thirty. Wow! Interviews. So mm-hmm. it's not only that. Like there's, I've I applied to hundreds of schools or hundreds of uh, companies, but. It, it was rare that I got a first round interview and in my head, I was like, okay, if I get a first round interview, then I'll be good. But you know, I, I walk in and it's interesting because my name, for, for example, 
doesn't scream, you know, black male. Yeah, right? it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, my my formal name is Michael Russell. So like they look at it and they're like, okay, well, he's probably a white male. This is all assumptions. Like I mm-hmm. like I'm assuming this is probably what what bias. Had, right. And you know, they do they have that bias. I mean, we all have biases, right? Like it's it's a normal part of human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's right, but it's you know, you it think is what one it way is. when you see someone. Um, and I think they were shocked when they saw that I was a black male with my background, right? Like I did well in school. Um, you know, I was an RA, like I have management skills. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was essentially managing a business while doing that. Like I was juggling a lot Yeah, and, you know, I had good references, you know, and they were shocked, right? They didn't believe you. They didn't believe me. So a lot of first round interviews, I went into it kind of knowing that they weren't going to pick me up. And then next thing you know, I got the denial letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was just interesting kind of dealing with that. And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, Vanguard took a chance on me and I had that on my resume and, you know, had the, um, what do they call it? I had the track record that they wanted um, that they were just like, okay, with me being a black male. Um, so that's essentially how that, how that went. But at a certain point you become so good. You said you had a track record. What do you mean? Track record as in like, they could trace back and say, okay, well, he was able to bring this much money into, you know, Vanguard, you know, he, you know, he, he he has a strong resume. Once you got the one, the one position, like once you got that management position under your belt, it was easier to get other positions and stuff like that. Right. Right, because yeah. for them, it's unfortunately, um, because I don't fit the mold, I have to work even harder. Like, mm-hmm. my resume has to be flawless. Yep. I have to show them the numbers and say, hey, this is how I can help out your company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't necessarily do that when you're in college. Like the, the, the amount of variables is, you know, somewhat limited in a way. So once you go to a company like that and you prove that you're a hard worker, you prove that you can, you know, turn the dial and, and help them grow as a company, then it becomes easier because at that point they're like, I don't care. Like in the finance world, we were, we will always say like, um, you know, we don't see, we don't, we don't see black. We don't see white. We see green, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, how much money can you make me? Yeah. Um, so that's something I realized over time, once I did get into the door and then ha- I have that track record, like they only see green at the end of the day. Like how can you make our company grow for better or for worse? That makes sense. Okay, so and they see customers that way too, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Okay, so let me ask you something. Um, what is a mutual fund, and what type of work does a mutual fund broker do? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so a mutual fund. I'll, I'll break that down a little bit. So, you, I think most people know what stocks are, but essentially, if you had um, if you had the Black Creator podcast um, company and you said, hey, like, I want someone to essentially pay me more money so I can use that money to build other podcasts or the hire town or whatever, you can essentially incorporate your, your business and people can buy shares of your company. And like then you'll... An S-Corp, right? Um, I guess you can with an S-Corp. Um, 
but most of the time it's like what they call a C corp or just like a regular corporation. Okay. And S corp is not to get tactical, but like an S corp, you can only have so many shares. I'm going to say you can only have like a hundred shares. Okay. Um, but like a C corp, like Tesla or Apple or what have you, you know, they have millions of, of shares that people can, can buy. And so, what are shares? Like break it down. Break yeah, it down. So, first. so when you, buy into a company um again the example of the black creator podcast if you you know if your company was incorporated people can actually buy shares of that company or sh- or buy pieces of ownership hmm. so for example i own amazon you know i have three shares of amazon mm-hmm. i'm a part owner of amazon albeit i'm a minority owner meaning that like i don't own more than 50 percent. like i don't own the company like yeah, Bezos probably does. but you still own it but i i'm a partial owner mm-hmm. so why am i explaining you know stocks and how they work is you you have stocks and then imagine a basket of stocks that you can buy so instead of just buying one you could buy 500 or a thousand um that is essentially what a, a mutual fund is, where mm-hmm. you're buying in and you get access to the Teslas, the Apples, the Amazons, um, you know, name the big companies probably in some of the largest mutual funds. And the the beauty of it is, you know, if I buy into, I don't know, Tesla and Elon Musk, who is the CEO and founder of Tesla, decides that he's going to just, you know, not work with the business anymore and he was going to just plummet the stock, right? I could lose all my money if I'm just in one stock. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in a mutual fund, um, you know, it gives you what they call diversification, meaning it, that, you know, if one stock were to fall, you have 500 other ones that would need to fall in order for it to directly impact you. Um, so that's why a lot of people jump into mutual funds and not those individual stock positions. Because you have that diversification, and because you have diversification, you have less risk. Um, but unfortunately, the headlines um, typically favor the individual stocks instead of like these mutual funds that are safer and um, you know can kind of give you more consistent growth over time. Okay, so is mutual funds an FTF? I mean ETF, or am I even saying it right? ATF? ETF. ETF. So, um, so they are, they're, let's say they're cousins, right? Like they're along the same vein, like the concept is the same, but they Mm -hmm. just do, they do things differently. So with a mutual fund, um, so an ETF came around because the asset managers or the people who kind of run these mutual funds said, Hey, like we want to make it more efficient. We want to make this even better. So like what's a mutual fund 2.0 where we could decrease the fees, you know, have like the diversification, the the amount of stocks in there, but we want it to be more, you know, a little bit more streamlined in a way. And then on top of that, we want people to be able to buy a, a basket of stocks, but make it very specific to what they want to go after. For example, every category, right? Yeah, a specific category. So if you wanted to buy an ETF that only invests into um, like the bigger like uh, brands, uh, like clothing brands, mm-hmm. you can. Or if you want to buy an ETF that 
only invest into like your favorite liquor brands like Hennessy or whatever, you can buy that that ETF. Um, they have ETFs literally for everything. They made an ETF for uh, for companies that are in the news more often than than others. Um, like so, they're constantly building these ETFs, and the beauty is that they're cheaper. With a mutual fund, it tends to be on the higher side. Like sometimes it's like a thousand to three thousand dollars to get in. But an ETF, you can get in for, you know, sometimes like 20, 25 bucks wow. um, and still have the benefits of a mutual fund, but a little bit more efficient and they're cheaper. So what I like about ETFs is that I mean, an ETF stands for exchange traded funds. Okay. Um, what I like about ETFs is that it gives us um, like our, our people access, right? Like people who for years haven't been, you know, advantaged in a way where they could invest. Like a lot of investing has been held away from us people, um, like us black folks. Um, and, you know, it's unfair. And unfortunately, because of system, I mean, I don't get me started, but like because I know, of right? <laughs> systematic racism, like yes. and um, our inability to access certain capital, we aren't able to, a lot of our, our friends and family aren't able to access mutual funds for a thousand, three thousand dollars. Especially if they're like, you know, families like mine where we're just trying to figure out how we're gonna get put on food on the table for the week. Mm-hmm. So if you can jump into an ETF, you know, you can have direct access to the market and you can invest your money and grow it over time um without having to, you know, dish out, you know, a thousand, three thousand dollars. Um so that's the that's the beauty of that. So are you for mutual funds? I think there is a place for mutual funds. Um, like there are certain things that mutual funds can do that ETFs cannot. Um, again, not to get technical, but like you can't what they call DCA into a mutual fund, meaning dollar cost average. So when you put money into a mutual fund, you can you can essentially buy it every day at 4 p.m. Eastern. Like that's when, when you buy. And you can DCA in or dollar cost, co- dollar cost average in um, by, and what that means is that you're incrementally putting money into the market, right? And like, you can do that every single day at 4 p.m. Eastern. You cannot incrementally put money into an ETF and, and kind of have it on autopilot Mm-hmm. Like you can with a with a mutual fund. Again, getting really really technical, but there's like little idiosyncrasies of mutual funds that you don't necessarily have with um, with ETF. So, um, so, but I think I think there is a place for mutual funds, but there you know ETFs are known as mutual fund 2.0 for a reason. So I much rather stick with ETFs if I can get the same benefits but more efficient. You ever talk to Wall Street Trapper? Uh, he was actually in Philly um, yeah. this weekend. Really? Yes, yeah, yeah. No, he. Um, I I don't know him personally. Obviously, I know what he does, and you know, I think he does an amazing job. You know, mm-hmm. making people like teaching people that you know Wall Street looks like us now. You know, it's like his big slogan. Yeah. Um, and it's true because we are, as I mentioned, you know, with the advent of ETFs and you know people understanding investment, investing little by little. You know they're they're actually getting into the market, and now we're a force to be reckoned with because there's a lot of black investors out there. Um, 
you know, let it be, you know, the Jay-Z of the world or people who, you know, have, you know, thousands to hundreds of thousands into the market. Like they have to appeal to what we want. Because mm-hmm. if a company comes out and says, hey, like we don't support, you know, whatever the, the, the campaign is and black people don't like that, we're going to pull our money out. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and for, you know, generations, it wasn't like that. So, yeah, I, I love what he does. Um, I've reached out to him before, uh, but obviously he is, you know, he has a lot going on. <laughs> he does have a um, lot going on. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I respect what he does. Um, he's more on, I'm more on like the budgeting, paying off debt and investing side. Like I kind of wrapped them all um, into each other, but he's more on like straight investing. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a right or wrong way, but that's just more of my philosophy versus his. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's about what works for you, right? Absolutely. Yep. Okay, cool. So um, you said what a mutual fund is. I appreciate you giving that very detailed definition because now I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get with the ETF because <laughs> low-key, I'm going to get with the ETF because because Robert Kiyosaki said we don't mess with the mutual mm-hmm. funds. Why did he say that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably along the same vein. Um, you know, ETFs tend to be a little bit more, I, I just, I bucket it as saying efficient. Um, like, for example, if, if you wanted to go and, and buy a mutual fund right now, mm-hmm. and you say, okay, I'm going to buy it right now at, um, two hundred bucks, two hundred dollars, or let's say a thousand, a thousand dollars. You won't actually get the price that you want until four o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's when they they calculate what they call the NAV or the the price of the mutual fund. So you don't actually get the price that you believe that you're going to get. So mm-hmm. if you're like, I only have a thousand bucks, and it goes up to a thousand two dollars, it won't actually invest into that mutual fund. Because you don't, you technically don't have enough. Hmm. With a with an ETF, you get the price on the spot. So if you're buying into, I'm trying to think of like a really popular like VU, um, Vanguard S and P 500 um, ETF, which just means that it, it invests into the 500 largest companies in the country. Hmm. Um, if you buy into that ETF, you get that that price. So if it's twenty dollars and you press submit and it's at twenty dollars, that's what you get. You don't have to wait until 4 p.m. Eastern. That's number one. Number two, because of how it's structured, it tends to be more tax efficient. I mean, this it gets technical, but the ETFs tend to be more tax efficient, so it's cheaper. So instead of paying, um, I don't know, like 20, 25 um, basis points, which is essentially you know 25% of 1%, you can actually get in the ETFs at a very low fee, I think. The ETF that I was just telling you about, VU, uh, Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, is actually like three basis points. So you're able to shave off that, which, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, people say, okay, well, how much is that really? It's not that much. Over a course of time, that adds up. That could be thousands of thousands of dollars that you could easily pass on to your children. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, because they're taking that fee that you would have paid to a mutual fund, that is keeping you away from being able to compound that dollar, right? Mm -hmm. So if they took $4,000 away from you, yeah, it's $4,000. But if you're passing this money on to your children and, you know, they have, you know, 80 years of their life, that's 80 years of compounding that you're missing out on because it's going to fees. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the reason I assume he's saying, Hey, like we don't, we don't do, I wouldn't be as, um, uh, what's the word, um, definitive about that. Cause I mm-hmm. think there is a place for mutual funds, mm-hmm. but I do agree, um, um, with the idea that mutual funds tend to be less efficient than ETFs. Absolutely. Okay. So, all right. It's kind of like the Nike shoe to like the Nike shoe to like pay less, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could, you can get good shoes at pay less, but they're probably going to cave in after some time. (laughs) Um, But if you get Nike shoes, like they're, they're more efficient. They're, they're they're built for the athlete. Um, It's probably it's probably a horrible analogy, but like it's a way to think about it. You say um, mutual funds are more the Nike or more the Payless? What? Because it sounds no. like you're saying pay- ETFs are more the Payless, right? No, no, no. Um, I would say ETFs are more of Nike. Like they're efficient, they are sleek and sexy, right? Like they're mm-hmm. built for the athlete. And yeah. then you have the mutual funds, which you know they do their job, but they're kind of clunky in the way. Um, that's why I related to to pay less shoes. Is it because of the home, the the human error? Um, no, I just think over time. I mean, these these companies, these asset managers, the people who like Vanguard, for example, they get paid to make the investments, you know, sexier and sexier. They they want people to invest into their funds, mm-hmm. so they take the feedback and they make them better. So as I mentioned, like mutual funds are were the first iteration of the idea of putting stocks together and be able to invest into it all at once. Mm. Um, and then the ETF was something that came out a little bit later. Um, so the ETF is something that came along, along a little bit later after taking the feedback from other asset managers and other investors who said, hey, like I want it to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of like a, a better example, like, I don't know, like the old Buick versus like the new Buick, right? Like yeah. back in the day, like Buick, both Buick, like Buicks were great cars. Like mm-hmm. my cousin has a Buick and it's from like the 1990s wow. and it still runs perfectly. It runs better than my car. Wow. Um, but Buick came out and said, you know what? I'm going to make Buick even better. I'm going to give you everything you love about the Buick. But we're going to make sure it's fuel efficient. We're going to make sure it's not clunky. We're going to make sure there's room in there. So, you know, if someone was like, oh, well, which Buick should I get? Likely, I would recommend the new Buick because of all the features. But it doesn't mean that the old Buick is not good. Okay. I mean. That's, that's a very, I got you. That makes complete sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So we went on a little bit of a rabbit hole. <laughs> Let me go back a little bit. So you didn't really explain what a mutual fund broker does. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely on a tangent. Yeah. So um, what the brokers do, like a stockbroker, is is what they call it. Even though you're 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 broking, you're being a broker. Uh, I don't even know. Yeah, a broker for mm-hmm. you know mutual fund stocks, ETFs, like all types of different securities. But their job is to help clients essentially move their money and invest their money. So the day in the life of someone who is, you know, a licensed stockbroker could be one of two things. It could either be someone who's actively trading those stocks, right? So you're trying to find the best stocks to invest in for the company. 
So as I mentioned with the S&P 500, like there's 500 stocks in there and their job is to essentially find opportunities to, to make more money. Mm. That's like more on the technical side. I was okay. like, I never wanted to do that. Like I would pull my hair out, the, the hair that I have. It sounds um, like a lot. Yeah. Um, so they call them traders. Um, and then you have people who are responsible for, you know, people like you and I and you know, our parents or grandparents who are trying to invest their money. And that's what I did. Where my job was, you know, someone will call, I talk to them, say, hey, like, you know, what are you trying to invest for? You know, what is your goal? How much money do you have? You know, how do you react to risk? Or, you know, if the market were to fall like it is today, (laughs) you know, how would you react? And trying to find the appropriate investment for them so they can invest. Um, That was that was my job. So the day, you know, day in the light life of a stockbroker or someone who's a registered representative for one of these brokerage firms is normally that where I'm helping people find the right investment for them. Mm. So did you like that work? Yeah, it was good. Um, I liked it in terms of, um, you know, what I learned. I learned a lot at a very young age. I learned how to, I learned how to invest. I learned from multimillionaires on like what they did in order to make, a lot of money, um, which I mean, people overcomplicate it, but really it's, you know, putting their money in, into investments and, mm-hmm. you know, continue to do that every week, every month, whatever, and yep. letting, letting it ride and <laughs> don't pull it out. Yep. Um, so that was good. But at the same time, it was very um, <clears throat> reactionary where I had to react to their concerns. So, you know, some of the things I didn't like. Christmas time at the end of the year, you know, people are calling in, you know, Christmas Eve. Hey, I want to invest my money. I want to invest before the end of the year. Right. I want to be out with my family, but Mm -hmm. I have to be there and I have to be there for the client because again, it's reactionary. So, you know, over time I kind of got annoyed of that. You know, I like being there for the client, but not, I want to make sure I had like a balance in my life. And I felt like for my early years in the financial world, <clears throat> I didn't really have that balance. Over time, I found jobs that allowed me to have more of that balance that I can help out clients, but I wasn't at the mercy of like when they wanted to call. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it was good and it was good and bad. I learned a lot, but over time, you get older and you say, hey, like, here are the things I like, here's some of the things I don't like, and you pivot. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> um, you're fine. Um, what I was going to say is, are you wearing AirPods or headphones? AirPods. Okay, so if you cough, just take the one with your mic on it and, like, hold it away from yourself, you know? Yeah, it should be fine. I think it just had a quick coughing spell. <laughs> no worries. Okay, so, all right. Um, what was it like working for Vanguard? Uh, Vanguard was good. I mean, I really lucked out. Um, the company is one that... Um, was really growing at the time. Um, I mean, it's still growing. I mean, they were, I think they're at 1 trillion when I was there. And now they're, last time I checked, they were at like five or six trillion. So like, obviously like, they're doing something right. Yeah. I was there during a, an expansionary time, um, you know, for the, for the company. They were making a lot of changes. They were putting money in the right places, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, Vanguard's the type of company that I feel like they do everything for the client, which you know, every decision we made was, okay, well, how were the clients improved based off of, you know, this decision? Like, literally every single decision. 
um, which is good and bad, right? Like the good is that we're, yeah, like the 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 good is the fact that we're helping people reach their specific goals, mm-hmm. you know, at a fairly low fee. The bad is that you know we're just you don't have a low fee company by overpaying your employees. Right. Mm -hmm. So at the time of being there, I was there for, you know, half of my career, you know, I didn't really get paid that well. Um, And they would sell you on the idea of, Hey, like we're not going to pay you that well because we don't want to take the money from the clients. Yeah. I can see if I was a robot, I get it. But you know, I have a livelihood. Like I have things I need to pay for. I didn't have a family at, at that time. So, you know, if, um, you know, if I had a family and had a pufu on the table, you know, I want to make sure that I'm being compensated appropriately. So absolutely, it's, absolutely. uh, I think every company has their pros and cons. Like, I don't think there's a, there's no perfect company, even Google. Like I hear feedback from places like Google, people are like, I hate it here. Um, so every company has their quirks. The question is always like, what quirks can you, can you deal with over a long period of time and which ones can you not? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, uh, where did you go after Vank? Hold on. Wait one second. Um, what was your average work time? Like, how long, how many hours a week were you putting in at Vanguard? And was it expected of you, or were you going above and beyond? Definitely going up and beyond. Like, I didn't really take a lunch break or anything like that so um and i would come in early stay late so um and i didn't work at home like when i got home i didn't like log in or anything like that so you know nine to ten hours a day was probably you know normal um it's like 50 hours give a or take week. yeah yeah give and take um and that was just because i mean i had so much going on like they didn't pay all too well but they tried to get every drop of work out of you um so i was somewhat managing like you know six to seven different jobs that i was fully expected to execute on flawlessly um so um it was it was a challenge but you know i i wouldn't say that it was working at vanguard compared to some of the other companies out there these asset managers Mm -hmm. um i lucked out like if i was you know, at like Goldman Sachs, for example, they work ridiculous hours. Um, they're also compensated really well, but you know, they're working 60, 70 hours weeks. And that just, I couldn't do that. That's the norm for them too. And they yep. think that's, the, that's normal. Like yeah, exactly. it's not normal. It's not normal to work that much time because who, who's going to have time to go home? Like you're not yeah. going to have time to go home. And when you are home, you're not going to be able to give anybody anything. So right. No use. Um, but what I was going to say is, all right. Um, you said something there that really sparked something in me. You said asset managers. You know, honestly, when you say that, it kind of clicked. Like, all these companies low-key are asset managers. Like, mm-hmm. all of them. Because even the company I worked for, it was a tech company. We had IT professional contractors. And we managed those assets. They're contractors. They're workers. The workers are the asset, for real. Mm-hmm. So, yeah you're managing something at all times and nine times out of 10, you're managing an asset that doesn't belong to you. So how long do you really want to manage that for? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Employees are your, your biggest asset and also your biggest expense. <laughs> That's yeah. one thing I learned uh, in my, in my career, but 
you know, in terms of these asset managers, what I mean by that is like, they're essentially the investment managers, right? They're in mm-hmm. charge of the investments, yeah. which is their second most important asset for, okay. you know, something, someone like Vanguard. When you say employees are more expensive, tell me a little bit more with that. Like did, what happened with an employee with you? Um, no, I just, well, I guess what I was going is that employees are your biggest expense. Like any company you talk to, whether it be mm-hmm. a small one or a big one, their, their employees or their, their workforce is their biggest expense. If and, they're employees, not contractors, right? Correct. 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 Okay. That's okay. the reason why a lot of companies have contractors because there are certain rules that, um, that don't, um, apply to contractors that apply to employees mm-hmm. because of what they call like ERISA laws. I mean, it can get really complicated, but essentially if you're a full-time employee, you get certain perks that a contractor does not have. Yep. And because of that, contractors tend to be cheaper. And that's why companies will say, okay, well, we'll bring in a bunch of contractors because we don't have to pay them as much, mm-hmm. but then essentially get them to do the same work. Um, so that's the reason why, but yeah, in terms of like any company, any company's workforce is their biggest expense. And that's the reason why if a company doesn't do well, the first thing they start hacking is like their their staff. Because like it's easy for them to just say, hey, I'm going to lay you off mm-hmm. um, as long as they do it legally. I don't believe in that. Like I think there's other non-lazy ways of doing that. But um, a lot of these companies, they don't really, they don't care as much. They, just they really say, hey, don't. I'm yeah. just going to get rid of you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, can't afford that no more. So, but okay. Uh, all right. What happened at Vanguard that made you decide to leave? And um, where did you go? Yeah. So over time, um, I worked, um, you know, worked at Vanguard for about you know, five, six years. Um, and I just wanted to get something different. You know, I wanted to do something different around the area. I wanted to see what life was like outside of the the vanguard walls which i mean vanguard is has a very strong culture um and you know a certain way of going about doing things and i just wanted something different Mm -hmm. um different change of pace so i ended up going to um another asset manager another financial firm um and my role was a little bit different but you know fairly the same in terms of like what we helped to do um that company was called franklin square um, which I believe is still around today. I'm not really sure. Franklin Square Medical? No, no, no. Franklin Square um, Investments. Okay. I think, I think they rebranded and they're called like FS Investments now. Okay. What was it like there? And was the were they giving you a better deal? Like, Yeah, so they ended up paying more, um, which was, was good. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a good experience initially, but I realized that the culture is not what I wanted. Um, they cared less about the, the people. Um, and that was a big thing for me where mm-hmm. I want to be somewhere where the company really cares about people and they just didn't, you know, just have like a, some horse and pony show saying, Hey, like, you know, we really care and we give back to charity, but they're only doing it to take pictures. You know? So, yeah. um, so I, I was only there for about a year then decided to leave. So where did you go after that? Yeah, so I went to a fintech firm um, called SCI. Um, so came in at one of the junior roles, um, you know, a junior account executive, I think they called it. 
What? And, and kind of progress through there. Um, Why did they have you go in as a junior executive when you was already, like, didn't you already have management experience? Yeah, I think it was more because the role wasn't exact. And they like to hire from within or promote from within. So they essentially say, hey, like, do this role. If you kill the role, then you can, you know, get elevated. So I was like, ah, what, what's a year? Like, I was getting compensated well. Like, what's a year? I'll completely kill the role. I'll network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew I was going to do well. So I think I was in that role for, like, five, six months. And then I was promoted. I was promoted, like, three or four times before I, I left the company within, you know, within two years. So that's ended awesome. working out in my favor. Yeah, Absolutely. That's awesome. Um. With the uh, fintech and the ex- account executive, okay. So, so what was the highest position you held there? Um, so uh, there was a regional director role that um, that I had. So the regional director was the role before the managing director, mm-hmm. and the managing director is like one of the senior ro- most senior roles that you can have at that company. Okay. So, uh, regional director and managing director. So it was RM, then it was DM. Um, so regional manager. Yeah. So RM and then, uh, managing director MD. MD. Okay. So question for you, what did you, uh, what are some big lessons that you learned climbing the ladder? Um, networking is key. Like a lot of times, you're most of the time when you get promoted, it's not all about your performance. Like I would like to say, hey, I was the best performing person there. And you know, that, that would be a lie. Like I think people did better than me, but mm-hmm. what I did better was manage my image and manage my perception. Like they call it pie, like perception, image and exposure, or I'm sorry, performance image and um, exposure. So I managed my exposure really well. So people knew who I was. I surrounded around. I surrounded myself around you know very talented people. Um, my image was solid. You know they they viewed me as that person who you know worked really hard and you know did whatever I needed to do in order to you know help the company out, uh, even if it requires me staying overtime. Mm-hmm. And then performance was okay. But the reason why I was I was promoted because I, I, I did the other two really well. You know, I did the I and the I and the E out of pie really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you had people vouching for me when I wasn't in the room. And I think it that's is. critical. That um, is. So I would say I was probably one of the biggest factors in how I was able to move through the corporate ladder. Okay. Um, what kind of profession, and this could have been at this position, like this this company or any company, but what kind of professional development did you get access to with your workforce? Like with your field, I guess you could say. Um, professional development. I mean, they like, paid for a lot of my um, licenses. Um, so when I became a stockbroker, when I became a financial advisor, um, they paid for a, a lot of that. You know, they had access to... I had access to a lot of people. Like, frankly, I learned a lot and maybe most of what I know from other folks that have done it before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're really big on, hey, like, open door policy. Like, you can ask me any question you want. Um, So that that went pretty far. Um, Other than that, you know, Vanguard paid for your MBA if you wanted to do it. 
Um, I chose not to go after my MBA. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, a lot of these companies have access to professional development. It all depends on what you're you're looking for. And um, I should mention I have like a hard stop here in a second. Okay, I understand. Um, How much longer do you have? Uh, I am a little over right now. Okay, so I want you to let the people know really briefly, let them know how to get in touch with you and give them your last piece of advice. Yeah. So you can follow me on, on Instagram. Um, Instagram is my main platform, but we are slowly branching out to other platforms. We have a discord community, a private community where you can learn all about investing, um, budgeting, paying off debt. Um, it's called better while university. Um, and then also we have, um, obviously we're, we're like on Twitter, we're on you know, TikTok as well. Um, and then we're building out a mastermind group, which is specifically for finance creators or people who love the topic of finance and they want to teach it online um, awesome. and they want to eventually quit their nine to five. So we have that mastermind. So uh, that's where you can find me. Uh, you can always email me at the better wallet uh, at gmail.com, or you can also check out the website, uh, the better wallet.com. Uh, so awesome. Okay. Uh, Okay. I I wish I could ask you more questions. I appreciate you so much for coming on here and talking to us. Don't want to take too much more of your time. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else you want to tell the people? No, I would just say, you know, just keep in mind, you know, money management is all about habits. I think people want to become ultra wealthy, but they don't want to focus in on the habits that make you wealthy. And what I've learned over my career is that it's those simple, boring habits of, saving money, contributing, you know, as often as you can and, you know, putting money into, you know, mutual funds and ETFs and such that help to make them millionaires over time. Um, so, you know, try to manage your money in, in a similar way and you'll find yourself in a really good spot. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate you. Um, I will let you know the link once everything is, is official. Okay. Absolutely. Have a good All one. Right. You too. Bye.